Be seated. Well, our text this morning, in light of uh, setting apart uh, these men for service, reminding ourselves about our service, our text is Ephesians 3.20. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's a wonderful text, and the problem is that we don't always believe it. Um, we're very much like the early church in so many ways. We're like the early church in Acts chapter 12. You know Acts chapter 12. You know that Peter and James are arrested. And um, verses 1 to 5, we're told that the church prayed for them. They were imprisoned and they were in danger. And verse 5 says that uh, earnest prayer was lifted up for Peter. James uh, was executed, and Peter still languished in the prison. And the saints of God naturally and rightly prayed earnestly for them, uh, for Peter, for his release. And then, you know the story that God sent an angel, and miraculously the angel uh, set him free. And he came and he knocked on the door where the saints were praying for his release. And you know that uh, uh, somebody came to the door and realized it was Peter and told the praying people who were praying for his release. And they said, well, you're crazy because it can't be him because he's in prison. It must be his ghost. And so they find it easier to believe that uh, it's his ghost than that God has answered their prayers that he be released. They prayed fervently. They didn't pray with a great deal of faith. And had this text been written, they would have to honestly say, we don't really believe that, that God can do anything he wants. Now, there's a gospel song that, um, that says, it is no secret what God can do. And uh, that's certainly true. And our text is telling us that it is no secret that there is no limit to what God can do. That's what our text is telling us, that there's no limit to what God can do. And it's important when someone takes up the responsibility of an elder, or when someone takes up the responsibility of a deacon, or when you try to live the Christian life, or when you try to be a witness in the world, or when you try to be a parent or a husband or a wife, and when you try to do anything for Christ, it's important to remember that there's no limit to what God can do. And as we live our Christian lives and as we walk this pilgrim path, fight the good fight, as we try to keep the faith, we need to do so by the power that God supplies. 1 Peter 4, 11. It's important to remember then that the, the God who supplies power for us to work 
the God who supplies strength for us to serve is the God who can do anything. The God for, whose, for, who, uh, for whom there is no limit to his power. And so we want to think very carefully and prayerfully this morning about the power of God. And we want to think about what God can do. And I want to speak to you, first of all, about the nature of God's power. The nature of God's power. And the first thing I'll say about the nature of God's power is that I want to point you to the inherent nature of God's power. The inherent nature of God's power. Paul says, now to him who is able. He describes God that way. He wants to give glory to God. Which God? Well, the God who is able. And the fact of the matter is that there's only one in the universe who is able. There's only one in the world who has power. And that's God. God's power is inherent. All other power is derivative. All other power is something that has been derived. If you have any power, it's power that God has given you. If any of us have any ability at all to do anything at all, it's ability that God has granted to us. It might, might make you very proud to feel that, you know, I have great ability in this area. I'm really good at that. I really shine in situations like this. And you like to share that with people and let them know just how well you do in a situation like that. You might be very tactful about how you share it, but somehow you get it out there that that's, that's right in my wheelhouse. The fact of the matter is that any ability like that, God gave you. You have nothing that you haven't received. The universe functions as it does because God sustains it. He gives it power. People do what they do because God has granted ability and strength. Even the powers of darkness, the powers of darkness have power. That's why they're called the powers of darkness. They have ability, and they're dangerous, and they can do us harm. But if you look in the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, if you search the word authority or the word power in the book of the Revelation, what you'll find is that it's frequently stated that power or authority is given to them to do this or that. So the powers of darkness, you know from reading Revelation yourself, the powers of darkness do terrible things in the world and to the church. But repeatedly we're told power or authority is given to them. And it's given to them by God. They could do nothing were not power given to them by God, because only God has power in himself. God is the one who has inherent power. Any ability we have is derived. You see that in the book of Job. Satan is given power to do this or that. He's given permission to do this or that to Job. Had God not given him permission, he would not be allowed to do that. Think of this as well. Think of Pilate. Pilate says to Jesus, I have power to release you or to put you to death. He wants to strut before Jesus and let Jesus know 
Who really has the power here? And the Lord Jesus says to him, you would have no power had it not been given to you from above. All the vaunted power you think you have as a Roman representative and as a Roman dignitary, you have no power but that God had given it to you. And so God then is the only one who has inherent power. No one else, nothing else has power. To the God who is able, Paul says, inherent power. The universe in which we live is not dualistic. It's not the powers of darkness against the forces of righteousness. It's the devil against God, and there's this wrestling match, this cosmic conflict, and we're not sure who's going to come out a winner in the end. And we hope it's God because we're on his side. This is not the Cold War where superpowers are lodged in some kind of conflict, and again, we're not sure. No, there's only one power in the universe, and that's God. And God simply has power. He didn't develop power. He wasn't granted power. He didn't work himself up into a position where now he has power. No, he simply is powerful. He simply is the omnipotent God. God's power is inherent. He simply has power. The second thing to note about the nature of God's power is the expansive nature of it. The expansive nature. God has great power. God has great power, overwhelming power. Omnipotence, we say. He has all power. People don't understand that. Hollywood doesn't understand that. I don't know if you remember uh, Samson and, and, and the lion in Judges 14. And Samson fights a lion. Now, Hollywood comes along and makes a movie with a man named Victor Mature, who a uh, reasonable actor and terrible movie, and they show this scene where Samson fights the lion. And I just watched, I brought it up on YouTube, because we can do that now, and I watched the scene again to see, make sure my memory was correct, which remarkably it was. And so Samson's fighting the lion, and it's tense, you see. Because there's this terrible lion, and Samson is reasonably muscular, and, and they're fighting, and they're wrestling, and they're going back and forth, and one's on top, and then one, the other one's on top, and everything's hanging in the balance, and it's touch and go, and, you know, Samson's, well, he's bleeding, he's got these biceps and there's blood here, and you think, oh, I hope he's okay, and, and finally, he just, he just kills the lion, and it's, you think, breathe a sigh of relief, oh, it's okay. But of course, that's Hollywood. That's not biblical. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, or the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the line to pieces. There was no tension at all. Because God has come, you see. And God has stretched forth his mighty arm. And God has come with power upon this man, so he tears the lion to pieces. God has great power. And this is what Paul's trying to tell us. He wants us to know that God has, has great power. The God who is on your side, the God who works in you and through you, has, has great power. There's no competition here. God doesn't wrestle, you know. 
in the sense that, oh, who's going to win in the end? No, God has great power. So Paul says, think about this. God can do all that we ask. So there's nothing you can ask God that he can't do. He can do that. He has that kind of power. He can do all that you ask. And then, Paul says, God can do more than you ask. So even stuff you haven't asked, he can do. And then he says, God can do more than we ask or think. You know, there are things that you ask. Maybe you ask all kinds of things. But then there are things you just kind of only think about because you don't have the nerve to actually ask that. I mean, I thought about that, but I just... Couldn't possibly ask that. Paul says, he can do that as well. The stuff you just think about and don't have the nerve to ask, he can do that. And then he can do abundantly more than we ask or think. Abundantly more than you can ask. Abundantly more than you can even think. He can do abundantly more than that. That's the kind of power that God has. And then Paul says... He can do far more abundantly than you could ask or think. I mean, way beyond. You could possibly imagine God can do that as well. There's just no limit to his power. And you think about all of this and you think, that's kind of torturous, Paul's language. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to pile words upon words so that you can understand that there's just no limit to this power of God and understand the expansive nature of God's power and understand that there's just no limit to it. And we struggle with that when we think of trying to describe things in this world and we're trying to describe something that's really, really big. We Sometimes people make up words. It's, it's humongous. It's ginormous and things like that. And we're always coming up with new creations to try and grapple with it. Paul's trying to do that kind of thing. He's trying to explain just how powerful God is. And the sum of it is that we understand Paul's weakness because he's, he just can't find words enough to explain the power of God. And what you have then is a, a limited man using limited vocabulary to just describe power that is limitless. And so we're talking then about uh, the inherent nature of God's power, the expansive nature of God's power, and then the engaged nature. And this is where it gets really encouraging. Because this is not dormant power, lying dormant somewhere. This is not disengaged power, that it's not connected in any way with us. No, this is power that is at work in us. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Who's the us? Well, the us is you. I mean, you're part of that us. If you're a believer in Christ, that's you. And so there is this kind of power at work in you today. Paul's already mentioned this in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. He's talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the, the working of his great might. There you see in that text, he's also piling words upon words, and he's saying that this power is towards you. This incredible power is aimed at us to do us good. It's toward us. It's aimed at us to do us good. And it's at work in us, so enabling us to do good. 
enabling us to serve, enabling us to do work that we couldn't possibly do on our own, which is everything. And so this is engaged power. You never take up any responsibility in your life. You take up this responsibility to serve the Lord, to serve his people, to serve your generation. And if you're a Christian, you don't take up that responsibility on your own. It's not simply your own two arms that are lifting this, this weighty responsibility. No, there are everlasting arms around you, carrying you, energizing you, empowering you. This power is directed towards you. When you go to work tomorrow, whatever that work is, you go with everlasting arms around you because God's power, this magnificent, raising people from the dead kind of power, that power is at work towards you and in you. That's extraordinary. So there you see something of the nature of God's power. One immediate response ought to be praise. But let's think secondly now about the demonstration of God's power. Paul's talking about amazing power. So what does God do then that amazes us? What does God do that absolutely astonishes us? Let me run through several things. We'll just touch on these very briefly. God created everything. There's, there's a start. What does God do that amazes us? Well, he creates everything. And the Bible says, without him, nothing was made that was made. Talk to your Jehovah's Witness friends and ask them to get around that, because that's said about Jesus. Without him, nothing was made that was made. They want to say he was made. Well, wait a minute. Without him, nothing was made that was made. You can't get around that. So God made everything. That's, that's powerful. And God made everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo, they say. Out of nothing, he made everything. Thomas Watson says, to create requires infinite power. All the world cannot make a fly. So says the Puritan. So God created everything. Secondly, God stopped the sun. God stopped the sun. So it's a beautiful sunny Saturday and you're playing soccer outside and it just troubles you that time is going so fast because any moment that it's going to get a call from somebody and you have to leave and you say, well, just stop the sun. Now you go and try that. You go and try. Stop the sun. See how that works. You keep doing that, somebody puts you in a room somewhere with a special jacket, right? No, God creates a universe. He creates the laws whereby those, uh, the parts of the universe run. And when he so wishes, he can countermand those, uh, those laws. And he can do something that we call miraculous. And so you read these words in the book of Judges, Judges 10. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave uh, the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. 
Is it not written in the book of Jeshur? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. I mean, do you realize how stupendous that is? How astonishing that is? So God created everything, and God stopped the sun, and God stopped the rain. And you read in James, Elijah was a man of the nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. So God stirred Elijah to pray, and... Um, to pray this prayer in particular, because God had a lesson for the people. So pray that the rain would stop. Elijah, pray that, you know, because God can do more than you could possibly imagine. So Elijah, pray that, and Elijah prays that. And for three and a half years, the rain stops. We can't predict when there's going to be rain. We have so little control. You can hear a forecast and, and it's saying, you no, know, it's going to rain, and you just turn, you look out the window, and it's the sun shining. Boy, we just have no control in this world. But God can, can stop the rain, and then when he so wishes, he can send the rain again. That's the kind of power that our God has. God can stop the rain. God, God made a fish. It's astonishing power. God makes a fish. Now, God made all fish. But he made a special fish, and we've been hearing about that uh, for a little while now from uh, Roger about, uh, about Jonah. And, uh, of course, it says that God made the fish that swallowed Jonah. Liberal scholars, uh, well, they say that that's impossible. You read liberal commentaries on Jonah, and that's impossible. That's just, it's got to be a picture of some sort. And Well, it was a bit of a picture, but... It, it's also history. God actually did it. They said it's impossible then that a fish could swallow Jonah. And, and then some evangelical scholars a little embarrassed by that, and they say, well, you know, it is, it is possible um, because there's a whale, and whales could conceivably do that. And if some happens to be just, you know, drifting by at the time that they toss Jonah out, you know, you just... So it's possible, they say... And in some ways, as they're trying to defend the Bible, they almost undermine it by trying to find some kind of naturalistic explanation to say, oh, it, it, it could be, it could be. The fact of the matter is, God made the fish, put him there, and he swallowed Jonah. And I like what one evangelical scholar says. He says, I have no problem believing that the whale swallowed Jonah, because we know it's not a, we don't know if it's a whale or not. But he says, I have no problem believing that the whale swallowed Jonah. In fact, I believe that if God wanted it, then Jonah could have swallowed the whale. You know, God can do anything he wants. He can do anything. And he can do far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. God made a fish, and God makes babies. God makes babies. Zechariah would have been helped by a verse like this. You remember Zechariah is told, yes, you and your wife are beyond childbearing, but you're going to have a child. And he says, how can that be? Not the way Mary said, how is it going to be? Because Mary is trying to understand something. Just like exact, God is going to do this. How is it going to work? He says, how could that be? 
because, you know, we're old. And that's why he couldn't talk. The fact of the matter is that God makes babies. Life comes from God. God gives life. And so God can do the miraculous. And so if here's a woman, she can't have a child. But if God wants her to, she can have a child. Because God can do far beyond anything you could possibly imagine. God makes babies. And then God raises the dead. I stand beside a dead body and touch a dead body and think about the fact that God can raise the dead. When Old Testament writers want to talk about the power of God, they say, think about creation or think about the Exodus. When New Testament writers want to just magnify the power of God, they say, think about resurrection. Notice um, what we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of this great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you want to know how great is the power of God? Something astonishing about the power of God? Look, he raises dead people. That's astounding. That power is at work in you. And then God saves souls. This is more incredible. At one level, initially, we think, for God to raise the dead, that's more amazing. But it's actually not. For God to raise the spiritually dead is more astounding. God regenerates. He makes alive. God calls and justifies and forgives and and destines those people who were headed for hell, destines them for glory. And sometimes, he does it in amazing numbers. In Acts chapter 2, through one sermon, he saves 3,000 people. Acts 2.41. He saves 3,000 people. Now, we're thankful for mercy drops. I look around here, I see this person was saved, and that person was saved, and... Maybe you were saved in the last little while, the last few years, or you're young in the faith. Well, thank God. You know, there was rejoicing in heaven when you were saved. That's what we read in Luke chapter 15. The angels rejoice when one sinner saved. So thank God for one sinner that's saved. Oh, thank God for mercy drops. Oh, but thank God for showers. So there was a shower that day, Acts 2.41. 3,000 people, one sermon, 3,000 people. Astonishing. That's the power of God. It's not that he preached one cracker of a sermon. I mean, book that sermon. Put that on sermon audio. Keep that sermon. It's a Royal George. Keep preaching that because people get saved under that sermon. Absolute nonsense. No, it's, it's just God making bare his arm. God saves souls. And um, sometimes people find it hard to believe that God saved that person. God saved that individual. No. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is saved. There seemed to be uh, manifest evidence of his being converted. People said, no, I don't, no, I don't think so. Not that guy. Do you know what he was doing? You know why he was on, you know, on the road to Damascus? You know why he was on that? 
I just don't trust him. I just, they don't believe. Sometimes God demonstrates his power in saving a soul. It's just astonishing. People have trouble believing it. When I was, conver- I was converted on a Monday night and I went to school the next day and I told her, there was a Christian girl there and I told her, I said, I, said, I-, I was saved last night. I- I'm a Christian. She says, no way. And now you can say no way in the sense that, no way, that's wonderful. No, she explained to me later in no uncertain terms. She said, I meant no way, not you. Just a terrible spiritual jerk, she said. Hmm? Impossible that God would save you. And I, I thoroughly understood. And sometimes God saves, and we're just astonished. He saves such a person as us. And then God enlarges the church. This is connected with the previous point, but... God enlarges the church in astonishing ways. That's just his power. Listen to one writer. He's talking now about the early expansion of the church. So the book of Acts and a little bit beyond, the first century and what happened there. He says this, If we examine the expansion of the church and look at its prayers as recorded in Acts and the epistles, we see convincing proof of the power of prayer. The early church had innumerable obstacles. Christianity was unknown. It was opposed by the authorities. It suffered constantly from false accusations or rumors. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate the body of Christ. They were accused of being idolaters. Um, they, They were accused of being atheists because they didn't have statues they worshiped, and so on and so forth. All kinds of lies. And it tended to attract the lower classes. Yet, at the end of the first century, it had spread in exactly the geographic pattern commissioned by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. This rapid geographical and ideological shift could only have been accomplished by supernatural forces. The church could only have grown as it did so extraordinarily in the first century Because God made bare his arm. Because God can do anything and far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. God saves souls. He enlarges the churches in ways we can't possibly have dreamed up. And then God brings awakening. God brings times down through the centuries. You read the history of awakenings and revivals. You go and read uh, George Whitfield biography by Arnold Dallimore. You're going to read books like that and accounts of the way in which God, in extraordinary ways, down through the history of the church, turns communities upside down and works in such a way that all through the town, all through the city, people are saved by the multitude. Something like Nineveh, where God does an extraordinary thing in a wicked city Make multitudes Christian. And then God glorifies the saints. You know, he saves them. And sometimes by the multitude, and then then he glorifies them. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says that one day we will have a body like unto the glorious body of Jesus. What power that takes. Any Christian medical practitioner knows that the 
The ultimate healer is God. And one day that's what he will do for you. You're a Christian. Maybe you feel your infirmity now. Maybe you feel your weakness now. Maybe you're feeling pain as you sit there and you're trying to find a comfortable position because, you know, you're, it's hard. It's hard to be here. Thank the Lord that the, these chairs are fairly comfortable, I think. But, boy, if it was a pew, you'd be struggling so much because, you know, we, it's a fallen world, isn't it? Well, one day, all the weaknesses will be gone. One day, all the, all the missing limbs will be restored. Asthmatic lungs renewed. Your chronically aching joints will be healed. The, the ravaging diseases that, well, they seem to be so common today, don't they? Well, that'll all be gone. There'll be no, no glasses. You know, and the, you won't have to, you know, you got the long distance stuff and then you got to take that off to read and then you got to grab the other one for this and you won't need any of that. No glasses, no wheelchairs, no walkers, no knee braces, no antibiotics. And you, when you travel, you won't have to get health insurance. I mean, I think we'll be able to travel just all over the universe. No worries, because you'll be fine. And you know, when now, when you, when, you, when you meet somebody, you haven't seen them for 20 years, and you meet them, and you, 20, how long has it been? 20 years. Oh, you say, you haven't changed a bit. It's amazing you don't get struck with lightning when you say that, because, my goodness, seriously. But in heaven, you can say that, and it'll be true. I mean, you've grown spiritually, but you have in no way deteriorated physically. See, God will give us perfect bodies. All right, so, well, these are some, you know what? I've just started to scratch the surface. I've been scratching the surface of scratching the surface about what power God has that amazes us. Okay, now how do we respond? The third point is the response to to his power. Two responses, and then we're done. First of all, believe. You should believe this. Our struggle is that we, we don't believe. Our struggle is that we doubt. We doubt the love of God. We're just like the disciples in the boat. Lord, don't you care? I mean, I'm, I'm drowning here. I'm drowning. I'm struggling. I can't keep my head above water. Don't you care? And sometimes we say that in anger. I punched a pillow a few couple of months ago. I was trying to sleep, and I punched a pillow to my shame. I don't know if you've ever punched a pillow, but boy, I punched that pillow. Yeah. So we, we, we doubt his love, and we doubt his power, we often ask for things and we do so with our arms hanging down, not really believing. And we think there are certain things that are beyond the pale of God's sovereignty, beyond the pale of his power. And uh, 
You know, we're like Sarah sometimes. I wonder if you've laughed the way Sarah laughed. God said to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. By this time next year, she's going to be pregnant. She's going to have a child. And, and Sarah laughed. Not a laugh of joy. Isn't that wonderful? But <laughs> I don't think so. That kind of laugh. Have you ever laughed a laugh like that? I'll bet you have. Yeah. Well, Paul says, oh, come on. You know better than that. (laughs) You know what God can do. You know that he can do far beyond anything you could possibly imagine. The God who created the universe, he can deal with that. The God who raises the dead, he can deal with that. The God who saves souls and saved yours, he can deal with that. Believe it. Believe what you believe. Believe your creed. Believe your doctrinal statements. Believe the texts you've memorized. Believe the God who says to you that he can do everything. Pray for great faith. That's what you and I need to do. If there's anything I've learned over the last, what, three years, is that I need to have more faith. I need to trust God more. That's what, from the debacle with Trinity and all the troubles that came consequent to that, and uh, that's the biggest lesson I've learned. I need, to have, I need to have more faith. I need to believe God. I need to trust him. My faith is weak. So pray for great faith. Because I suspect you're not much different than I am. And, you know, this is true for you if you're, a, if you're not a Christian as well. Do you, do you believe God? I mean, we ought to believe God. We're the people of God. We ought to believe. But you, you should believe God. I mean, do you believe that he's able to save you? The, the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's what the Bible says. Paul here says, he can do anything. He's able to do far beyond you could possibly imagine. And the other verse says, he's able to save you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you can come to him in all your weakness and in all your sin, with all your spiritually sinful baggage? You can come to him, you know, you don't put your works there because you know that that's not going to do it. You can't work your way to heaven. You know that you can't do that. The Bible's clear about that. But you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, save me. Just like Peter, he's going down and he looks and he says, Lord, save me. And, and the Lord, all of a sudden, he's in the boat. Jesus is able to save him. He's able to save you. Doesn't matter how long you've been a non-Christian. Doesn't matter how hard your heart has been. Doesn't matter how wicked you think you are. You're way worse, by the way. He's still able to save you. He has that kind of power. So you need to believe. You need to believe. So that's the first response. If all of this is true, and it most definitely is, believe it. Secondly, ask. Ask. That's Paul's point here. You see, he's been been telling them about the things he's asking for them that they would be strengthened, that they know the love of God, and so on and so forth. Now he says, glory to God who's able to do far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. And uh, I've been asking for incredible things, Paul says. Do you think that God can do that? 
Well, of course he can, he says. He can do anything. Well, then pray, ask. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You believe that? You can't ask God for too much. Well, there's a writer who said, uh, he said, God has rich treasures for us, but we must reach for them. <laughs> rich treasures, but we must reach for them. We must ask. God is able. So, you know, let our, let our prayer meetings be full. Let our petitions be bold. Let our faith be strong and let us ask God for great things. You know, in, in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 9, we read this. Luke 11, just turn there for a moment. Luke 11, we're almost done. Luke 11, verses 5 to 9. You know this passage in um, verse 5. Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a, his friend, yet because of his impudence, that is the impudence of the person knocking on the door, he will rise and give him whatever he wants. Because of the impudence of the one who's knocking on the door and asking for something. That's interesting. That's, that word impudence, you may not know what that means. Uh, if you're you know, one of our young people here and children, you, impudence, it means to be impertinent, which uh, maybe you don't know that either. It means to be shamelessly presumptuous. Maybe you don't know that either. <laughs> but um, it means something like this. You'll understand this. So imagine I'm sitting here with a banana split Sunday. I mean, huge. Bananas, chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, strawberry ice cream with strawberries sprinkled over it. Um, not the picked strawberries, but the one that's been put all kinds of sugar on it and everything, and, and the sauce, and, it's, and then chocolate sauce, and then whipped cream, and sprinkled chocolate, and it's just, I mean, it's massive. And you don't need lunch or supper. You don't need a meal for this. This is in itself a meal. And then you watch, and your child, one of your children goes up, stands and stares, just stares, and you're afraid, you're, you're, you're already nervous, because you know this one says things he or she ought not to. So you, you're standing there on pins and needles, and finally he can no longer resist, or she can no longer stop herself, and says, says to me, can I have that? And you say, what? And then you kick into mom and dad mode and you explain what impudence means and what 
presumption means. And so, that's what it is. It's asking for, how, how dare you ask that? Jesus says he'll get up because of the impudence of the knocker. And Jesus is saying, pray like that. I mean, walk up to God and pray. What did the hymn say? Great petitions with thee bring. I'd like you to do that. Are you serious? Yes, that. Do that. Well, if we have a God like this, and he loves us like we know he does, and he's as committed to our good and our benefit and our blessing as we know him to be, then ask for great things. Ask for astonishing things. And so, pray for salvation. That's astonishing. And pray for the stirring of the hearts of Christians. That's big. And pray for times of revival in this country. Pray for days of awakening in this dark place. And pray for marvelous provisions for God's people. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'd make us men and women of faith. Uh, men and women who believe, who believe you. Christians who are marked and characterized by great faith. And may that energize us to service. And may that enliven us in prayer. For Jesus' sake.